Amen. Would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the command to rejoice because you are king. Um, you are a sovereign king, and you do not ask permission, Lord. You just take your seat that the Father has given you, the seat of all power and all authority, of all dominion, of all glory and honor. We love you, and we thank you that we, your people, um, who have been, by the mercies of God, uh, made alive together with you and are seated with you in the heavenly places. We thank you that we get to rejoice in your authority, even though now, yet for a little while, we do not see the things as they really are. And so would you help us this day as we turn our affection and our attention to your word, to the Psalms, and and, um, and ask you, Lord, to reveal to us the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you take your word? Would you open it to us so that we could see Christ glorified, crucified, raised for sinners, reigning for his bride? And would you encourage us towards faithfulness? We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8, and let me explain. The, uh, well, first off, thank you. I'm glad to be uh, back with you. Thank you for the long break. Thank you for our elders to carry the pulpit um, in, my, in my absence. I've been, um, it's been really fun to listen to preaching and to be um, uh, excited to get back to it, excited to, uh, excited to preach again, and so been uh, praying about weighing what we should as a church uh, give our attention to in, uh, in this next season. We finished Acts, and so um, I've been unsettled as to what to preach. And so as the seasons change, the fall is my favorite, my favorite season, um, I thought like, oh, what I'll do is I'll preach a text that has to do with an exhortation for us all to go not just be people of the word, which we must be, amen? Like this is the centerpiece of what we do as a church. So we gather around the word, but also that we would be people of the world that God has made because the heavens declare the glory of God. And so we wanna, as the heavens are gloriously declaring his praise, we wanna go out and get in them. And so that was my idea. The two Psalms that came to mind, Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, just to exhort us to go outside and glorify God. However, um, as I dug into this text, uh, it just took on a completely different meaning that I thought it was going to take. And I'll show, you, uh, I'll show you why that's the case. And so you're in Psalm chapter 8. We'll read it and, uh, and then we'll observe it, uh, observe it together. But just understand this is not the message that I intended when the Lord led me to the psalm. Okay. Psalm 8, to the choir master according to the Gittith. A psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the heavens. Behold, the glory of changing one word to get across a really important idea. Did you catch it? Fix it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the heavens. Fix it. In all the earth. In all the earth. So often, passages of scripture become so familiar that they can't break through into our consciousness so that we can see the staggering reality that's being proclaimed. We're just, it's familiar and so... Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we fail to see what's being said. We read the opening lines of this psalm and immediately our eyes are called heavenward. Even though David begins with God's glory here on the earth, filling every nook and every cranny. God's name made majestic in Fayette County, as in Fairbanks, Alaska. Is it Alaska, Yancy? Fairbanks? Okay. The Russians shall hear and tremble. The jihadists must bow the knee. Africans shall see and the Chinese shall hear. God's glory, majestic, his name, majestic in all the earth. This psalm does for us what we desperately need done. It takes the unseen realm of heavenly realities and moves them into our backyard. It puts them in our mailbox addressed to us. He who has set his glory, as the psalm says, above the heavens, has also put strength into the mouth of nursing infants in order that God's enemies would flee. It's good that we've got a nursing infant over there screaming. This psalm, that's not accidental, by the way. Not accidental. This psalm would be a perfect Christmas psalm as we celebrate the immaterial, all-powerful word of God by whom all things have been made who was born to a young Jewish virgin in the town of David. The word became flesh, and now God can be heard cooing, and he can be seen making goo-goo eyes at his mother Mary. The very thought would be blasphemy of the highest order if it wasn't God telling the story. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. No, God's glory is not merely displayed in the heavens or above them, although it certainly is. He has seen to it that his glory is made manifest among us. And so what shall we learn from these things, brothers and sisters? First of all, that God is in a battle and that he uses babies to win it. And I quote, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Do you see the battle here? So there are those who hate God in the world, and somewhere, somebody said something like this. A servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Jesus. 
So God has enemies and we, God's people, have enemies because we're allied ourselves with God. We are allied with God. So two weeks ago, Paul exhorted us not to be frightened in anything by our opponents, which is a clear sign of their destruction and of our salvation, but to be engaged in the same conflict that we see in Paul, which was the same conflict he saw in Christ. So let us not lose sight of the facts of the battle and of the presence of enemies. But let us also not lose sight of the way God beats those enemies down. Does God win his fights? Always. He's never lost. He is a million and zero. He's never lost. But how does he win? Luther called it God's left-handed power. God triumphing over his enemies in weakness. How am I going to beat a nine-foot-tall giant who's a man-eating battle lord? I've got an idea. I'll call a little boy who's a shepherd. Okay, if I can answer in a word from this psalm, how does God beat his babies? Beat his enemies, excuse me. There's the answer. Babies. Yes, babies. God loves to shame the strong by using the weak. He loves to confound the wise by enlightening the foolish. He loves, listen to me, to control the future by present simple obedience. Babies, let us all remember from this point forth and forevermore, babies are not for cooing and for cuddling. They are for conquering. If you believe Psalm 8, and you should, and if you've heeded the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, what's the next verb? Subdue it and have dominion. Why do we have babies? So that we can fill the earth. Why do we fill the earth? So that we can conquer it. Why do we conquer it? So that we can have dominion in the name of Christ. Hey boy, quit blocking that thing. Okay, babies are for conquering. As a matter of fact, Jesus quoted this verse at his triumphal entry when his most powerful enemies got their panties in a wad because some little children along with a mob of blind and lame people, were chanting praise to Christ in the temple. Hosanna to the Son of David, salvation to our God, they said about Jesus. They cried out in the temple, and the, uh, the enemies of Christ said, Do you see, do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to hush. And Jesus said, Have you not read? And he quotes from our psalm. Psalm 8, and he makes a very interesting, like I did to open the sermon, a very interesting, um, he, he inserts a very interesting change in his quotation. He says, and I quote, out of the mouths of infants, you have prepared praise. Now, our psalm says, out of the mouths of uh, babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foe. Jesus says, out of the mouths of infants, you have prepared praise. Perhaps it's not a change. It's not an amendment after all, but it's one of those word changes that helps to clarify. For the Christian, praise is our strength. Behold, in the joy of the Lord is your strength. Our worship is warfare. Jesus was conquering kingdoms through the cries of those children, and he quoted Psalm 8 to do it. This incidentally is just what happened in the Exodus generation. Think about this with me. 
the Exodus generation, they come out into the wilderness. They're in battle array going up to conquer the land. They send spies. The spies say the people are giants and we can't do it. Uh, ten of them did. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can totally do this because God is with us. And the, the crowd the, uh, followed the ten spies and they said, no, our children will be prey for them. Our children will die if we go in there because they're giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do this. And so the grown-ups didn't believe God, was able to do what he had promised, so they disbelieved God, and then they withdrew from obedience. God's response to them was that all the people of that generation would perish in the wilderness and that their children, who they feared would be prey to the Canaanites, that those babies would grow up and draw swords with Joshua and win the land. And so Jesus, in his day, looking at the grown-ups who were saying, shut those kids' mouths. And he was saying, no, those kids have it right. Tell you the truth, Luke says, if they were to be quiet, the very stones would cry out my praise. Those kids grew up, that, that generation died without Christ, uh, in Christ's generation. Those adults that saw the word of God made flesh and rejected him. Well, their children who are crying out his praise in the temple, those children, some of them, grew up to populate the kingdom of Christ. So, a word to the wise. A word to the wise. It is right for us all to get the warm fuzzies when we hear the pitter-patter of little feet across the linoleum. Okay? As I'm writing this sermon, uh, uh, Judah goes running across upstairs to go find his mom and I hear like of little people and I'm like oh what a sweet good glorious sound cherish those moments but do not forget that if you are doing your covenant part to raise those feet up in the fear and admonition of the Lord that that pitter patter is really the lordly stomp of combat boots treading off to war this is how God conquers his enemies brothers and sisters is through babies now I want to point out something obvious that David does in the next uh, few verses so that I can explain something less obvious that he is doing in the psalm as a whole. Okay, In verse 3 and 4, David does something that we're all accustomed to doing, or at least we should be. He looks at the heavens, describes them. Listen, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. So David looks at the heavens and he describes them as the tiny finger working of God. Literally the, the sewing or the knitting of God. David refers to the Milky Way galaxy as God's tiny finger work, as though God himself showed up to embroidery class. And he sits there with all the ladies. And while they're embroidering, God is doing his part. And then when they get done, Gracie holds up a piece of cloth and says, look at how pretty. And I say, wow, amazing. And God holds up the Crab Nebula, whatever that is, the Milky Way. And he says, look what I did. That stuff out there is his tiny fingertip working of God. His smallest stuff is that stuff that makes us feel so small. And David looks up at that, the planetary dance, the needlework of God. By the way, as an aside, 
The scripture talks about that that is his tiny fingertip working, but every time the scripture uses a metaphor for the salvation of God, it says that God, for our redemption, bared his right arm. Milky Way Galaxy, easy. Redemption from sin, that takes the Son of God invading, dying on the cross to pay for our sin. But that's a digression. Back to the obvious. David looks at the heavens and he wonders, rightly so, at the fact of God being mindful of David. Now think about this with me. Like, look at all of that. This is why I wanted to preach this psalm, is to look at all of that and then say, God cares for you. It's an amazing thing. Wonder at it. So let's think. Imagine. So your body is made up of trillions of little cells, right? Now imagine if one of those, of, in one of those cells, which is made up of hundreds of thousands of mitochondria, if one of those mitochondria lifts his little mind, mitochondriatic head and he looks over the cell wall we're imagining here and he looks at all of the vast reaches and he sees how tiny and insignificant he really is, he would feel very small. He would have what philosophers call an existential crisis on his hands. Who am I? What am I? I'm so tiny. I mean absolutely nothing in this vastness. He would feel himself to be an insignificant one in a trillion about which personally nobody cares. Raise your hand if you've ever met and named and cared for one of your mitochondria. I hadn't. I didn't give them a thought until writing this sermon. Well, we are like that. So insignificant in size that it staggers the mind when we hear that God cares for us. When we look at the ocean, when we look at the stars, when we look at the vastness and just know ourselves to be a one in a trillion mitochondria size P. And God, yet God cares for us. We were made to feel tiny in the presence of staggering size so that we could appreciate more being loved by the one who makes that size look tiny. Remember, what is the Milky Way? His knitting, his little bitty work. We go to the ocean to feel small. God could drink the ocean and not slake his thirst at all, if you could speak of such things. We stare at planets trillions of light years away and feel tiny. God must stoop to take notice of them. Heaven is my throne, saith the Lord. The earth is my footstool. And yet, and yet. He cares for us and draws us to mind. He works all things for our good. Uh, all things for our good. How much more precious. Uh, so uh, I, I wrote a letter to a hero of mine that I used to go to his church. I left uh, when my parents divorced third, fourth grade, something like that. Never went, never went back. I've never spoken to him since I was in third grade. I wrote him a couple years ago. Um, then a low point, listened to a sermon. It was the best sermon that I'd ever heard. It was just what my soul needed. It was one that I showed up the next Sunday and I told you that I stole it and that I'm preaching his sermon. I told you that. I was honest, so it's okay. It's not plagiarism unless I claim that all the jokes were mine, right? Um, but I wrote him a letter and I just said, hey, thank you for being faithful. And to my surprise, I get a letter back in the mail, his glorious handwriting addressed to, not to Will, who I signed, but addressed to my childhood nickname, Beastie. 
because I had a ferociously bad temper and I was awful. But he remembered me from childhood. Beastie, it's so good to hear from you. I've been praying for you. When I heard that you had been called into ministry, I've been praying for you since then. How did you know that I would... I, I, you, you haven't talked... When you, when you buried your wife, I've been praying for you. How did you know that? And it was staggering. It was staggering that this giant of the faith, and I really mean giant of the faith, knows my name, my childhood nickname even better. How much more precious that God himself is mindful of his people. He knows your name. He knows your nickname. David says that God is both mindful and caring towards him. And my heart, maybe like yours, always feels on the outside of things like that. Like I can read David saying uh, uh, that, that you are mindful of him, that the son of man that you care for him. And I can say, yeah, David can claim this, but is it true of me? Sure, God cares for David, but does he care for me? And I doubt I'm alone in there. And so let me give you a secret stash of gospel sweetness hidden on the top shelf. Are you ready for this? The psalm begins, not, oh, Lord, my Lord. How does it begin? Oh, Lord, our Lord. This, the way that that God cares for David is the way that that God cares for Yancey and for Carmali and for the Vivials. Like, this is the God who cares for all of us this way. It is glorious, glorious this morning. I grab Judah. It's a typical thing that I do. I'll grab him and I'll pick him up and I'll say, do you know that daddy loves you? And then I'll shake him like crazy. And, and he laughs and he's like, yeah, 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 yes. And I'll keep shaking him and I'll say, don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever question that. Daddy loves you. Now, Christian, do you know, I'd shake you if I could. Do you know that God loves you this way? Amen. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget that. God loves you this way that he sent his son to purchase not just the cosmos but he had names he had names in mind now don't ever forget that but but we cannot stop with comfort because David doesn't stop with comfort that's what I wanted to preach to you today it's just comfort and I want you to know comfort from these verses, because if I don't, I haven't preached the, the, the text. But David doesn't stop with comfort. The point of this psalm is not found at the halfway point. The point of this psalm is that the comfort of the love of God for sinners leads those sinners to rise up and claim dominion upon the earth. Comfort is not the point. Conquering is the point. Note these verbs. Let's watch this. What it, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, stars, moon, stars you've set in place, what's man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Amen, let's go home. Doesn't end there. Yet, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. By the way, the, the Hebrew there, you've made him a little lower than Elohim. It might mean angels. It might also mean what Genesis 1-1 means. Bereshit, bara, Elohim, in the beginning, God, Elohim, made the heavens and the earth. God made us in his image, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Again, almost blasphemy if it wasn't God telling the story. You've made him. 
You've crowned him with glory and honor. Do you know yourself to be crowned with glory and honor? Like, what does it mean about you that God has put a crown upon your head? What does that make you? Who wears a crown? Kings and queens. You have given him dominion. It's not something he's earned. It's something that's been gifted. Given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, beasts, birds, the fish of the sea. It's an amazing thing. What's the point? The point is that when God made Adam in his image, he intended Adam to conquer and to rule the world under God's authority, by God's strength, and for God's glory. God intended Adam to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It wasn't yet brought to heal. There were enemies in the garden to be fought. Now, this is what it meant for Adam to bear the image of God. But Adam refused to bear God's image by throwing his God-given kingdom away when he bowed his knee to the creation from which he should have demanded submission and obedience. That's maybe the best sentence I've ever constructed in my life. I'm going to read it to you again. Adam refused to bear God's image by throwing away his God-given kingdom when he bowed his knee to the creation from which he should have demanded submission and obedience. What is it that leads Eve to lead Adam to reject God's authority? It's the creature that God had given man to steward. So you have this hierarchical glory that God created without sin, that there is to be God and then man and then his wife and then creation. And you can look at authority and who names what. And that's what's in authority there. God names sun, moon, stars. He names all of these things. And then he creates all these animals and says, Adam, your turn, because these I have given to you. Who names Eve? Who says, oh, this, uh, I'll call her Isha because she was taken out of Ish. It was Adam. And so in the fall, you have, you have uh, God, you have man who's to be leading his wife to rule the world. And in the fall, you have creature telling wife to lead husband to reject God. Is that accidental? And is it accidental that those things which God has set in place, like headship in marriage and, and submission, that headship that's sacrificial and that blesses, submission that is voluntary and joyful, that that can be the stuff of gag reflex in our culture? What is that? because we've taken the lie that such things are evil. So, the new and better Adam, however, Christ the Lord, he would not bow the knee to the serpent. He succeeded where Adam failed, and as he looked for the seed of the woman, as they looked for seed of the woman who was promised in Genesis 3, Jesus put Satan's serpentine head underfoot, and he did the mashed potato. And you old-timers know what I'm talking about. I've never done the mashed potato. I know that you're supposed to be on the balls of your feet, twisting and turning. And that's what Jesus did to his enemy and our enemy, Satan. He put him underfoot like Adam should have done, and he killed him. And he said, you will not take my bride. So let me answer a question that some of you are probably asking. Your question will run something like this. Yes, this psalm applies to Jesus. Hebrews 2 makes that obvious. That this psalm is directly applied to Jesus. We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. 
crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. Okay? This obviously applies to Jesus, and so we might say, so the dominion and the crowning here does not therefore apply to us. Here's how I would answer. In answer, I would say that when we speak of salvation, we are speaking of union with Jesus. Salvation cannot mean anything but that. Union with Jesus. Paul says it like this. In the beginning, God made the man and the woman, and the, uh, the two shall become one flesh. The two have become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a mystery I know, and it's hard to understand, but I'm telling you that that referred to the relationship between Jesus and his church, that the two will become one flesh. And so you and I are called the what of the body of Christ? We're called the body of Christ. I just gave you the answer. We are called the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, and he nourishes and cherishes his body. So in union with Christ, listen to me, everything that is ours has become his, and everything that is his has become ours. Guess what I got when I married Gracie? I got a Camaro. Guess what she got? She got a bunch of people and, and a bad attitude husband. Like all of my stuff became hers and all of her stuff became mine. Now in that metaphor, what we would have to have had that, which it wasn't this way, but it would have had to have been that I was the greatest man to have ever lived, the most wealthy man who's ever lived, the most beautiful man that's ever lived, and that she was a whore. It would have to be this way. And that she was in debt and that she was the worst and that the world hated her. And that I said, I want you as my wife. And now every debt that she has becomes mine and I got to pay it. And that every account that I have and every bar of gold that I have stacked up to the heavens is hers because she's mine and because I am hers. Okay. This is what marriage means. It means the two where there was a guy over here and a gal over here. Now there's one new thing. Union with Christ means our stuff becomes his. He takes our sin upon himself. He gives his righteousness to us. He suffers for sin that he didn't commit. We get rewarded for obedience that we didn't owe, that we didn't give. It's an amazing thing. So salvation is and always has been union with Jesus. Okay? So when I say that this text does apply to you, I mean that this text does apply to you, the bride of Christ. Okay? That this, uh, this is ours in Christ, that God has made us a little lower than the angels, crowned us with glory and honor, given us dominion over the works of our, uh, over his hands, and he has done all these things in and through Jesus. But you need more proof, and so we're going to play a short game and then, uh, and then I'll be done. I'm going to quote to you some very familiar, like I did to start this sermon, some very familiar texts in the scripture. And I'm going to change a word or two. And you're going to correct me so that we can all see these things for fresh. You want to play? It'll be great. We'll start with a hymn. Do you want me to quote it or do you want me to sing it? Sing it. Sing it? Okay. <clears throat> Need a pitch pipe. Okay. Jesus paid a lot. Most to him I owe. He did almost all there was. Now watch me as I go. 
doesn't that just make you want to worship? No, it does not. You know why? Because it sucks, one, and because it's not true, number two. Jesus didn't give up his spirit on the cross saying, almost, God, I almost did it. It is almost paid. Or, even better, here's your down payment, oh God. Now, if you love me, go finish paying off the rest. What did he say, Christian? It is finished. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Nothing left for us to do but to receive that, that grace. Okay, so now we know the game. All right, correct this. Let me get through, let me get through the quotation and then, and then I'll ask and you can correct it. Okay, you are Peter and upon this rock you will build your church. What is it? Where is that wrong? You are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay. We got that. Easy enough. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of heaven shall no longer fail against the battering of Satan's onslaught. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of heaven? The gates of hell. Wait a second. Wait a second. I thought we were manning the ramparts, defending ourselves against Satan's onslaught. It sounds to me like he's the one under siege. He's the one in the castle manning his gates, the weakest part, so that he can withstand Christ. And Christ is saying, you're going to beat down his gates and they will not stand. You are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. Did you see it? I messed it up again. What is it? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning the church, meaning Christ is going to conquer and he's going to do it through his church. So you've, you've made Christ a little lower than the angels. You've given him dominion. How is Jesus going to take that dominion? He's going to send you and he's going to send me. Okay. Let's do another. This is, uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, the God of war will soon crush Satan. This is a little bit more obscure. It's at the end of Romans. He doesn't say the God of war. He says, very interestingly, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. God loves peace, but do you know how he gets peace? He gets it. By destroying his enemies. God gets peace. He, he wins peace by slaying Pharaoh's firstborn. By throwing the armies of Pharaoh into the Dead Sea. Into the Red Sea, rather. Jesus, God, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under the foot of Jesus. Can y'all correct that part? Under your feet, Paul tells the church in Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, not under the foot of Christ, under the foot of the church, which is the foot of Christ, because we are in union with him. So we can't make this bifurcation of like work that Jesus does and then work that the church does, because Jesus does his work through the church. Okay? This is a great one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall go to heaven. 
Wait a second. Inherit the earth? This thing's going to hell in a handbasket. Do we want this earth? Yes, we do. If, if Christ has promised it and he has promised it, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This will be fun. All authority in heaven and in heaven has been given to me. In heaven and on earth. Let me ask you, what, what piece of authority in this earth does not belong to Jesus when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? He owns all things. And as Lord, he has commanded us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, stay and make converts when you can. Change it. Fix it. Stay and teach people to walk an aisle and to pray a sinner's prayer. To believe in their hearts. No. Stay. Make disciples. Not of all types of people, but of the nations. Like I don't know, America or Mexico or Canada. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. I want to change up some more of this verse just while I'm at it. So let me get it in front of me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to just believe in their heart that I'm the Lord. Teach them to do what? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we can't just say we're on the, great, the Lord's Great Commission when we, we are content to stop at telling people just to believe in their hearts for the forgiveness of sin. And then go on about their lives as though Jesus isn't Lord. We preach Jesus Christ, the Lord, crucified and raised for sinners. Do we preach to people to believe in the Lord Jesus? Yes, because you're not saved by works of the law or by obedience to Christ. You are saved by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. But that comfort leads to something. That comfort leads to conquering. And so Jesus sent us to disciple the nations. I'm going to give you one more. Uh, this comes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and from Isaiah chapter 11. Um, and it is in the Old Testament, in my, in my understanding, it's, it's in the Old Testament what Romans 8 is to the New Testament. When Romans 8 says that... Um, he, God, works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes because those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world, foreknow means foreloved, those whom he loved before, before the foundation of the world, God predestined to be conformed into the image of his son Jesus Christ so that Christ may be the firstborn among many brethren. And so that text gives us the telos of humanity, where we are all going, conformity into the image of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, this text is quoted twice, and it gives us the telos, the end of the hope of all of an Old Testament Christian. And it says, you may not know, be able to correct this one, but I'll give it to you. 
For the hearts of believers will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. Can anybody fix that? The heart of believers shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. Do you know it? I'll read it to you. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. We cannot be content with preaching the lordship of Christ to pockets. If, we want, if we're watching all of this stuff go on in our world and we're wondering who can fix this, the answer is the church, but it's the church militant. It's the church that will be about the mission that Christ sent her to be about, which is to disciple the nations. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the heavens? No, in all the earth. Jesus is Lord, brothers and sisters. We are to preach the whole Christ to the whole world. He is the king. He will receive the reward of his suffering. And we, the body of Christ, the bride of the king, are the means by which that dominion will be realized. So let's get to it. Let me pray for us and we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Lord Jesus, um, what an amazing confession that the church throughout history has held to, that you are the Lord of the cosmos, that our brothers and sisters uh, gladly and willingly suffered, bled, and died, yielding up their lives, yielding up whatever cost to continue to faithfully preach that message that you are the king. You are the creator and the redeemer of all the world and everything is yours. Would you help us, Lord, to understand our place in the history of man, that we as your body and your bride, we are the means by which you shall conquer this world and spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord over this earth as water covers the sea. Would you help us to be about that work, Lord? We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. This table is the daily bread of believers. We are meant to come and we're meant to be fed body and soul on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But to come, we have to bring two types of things together. Okay? One might say the stuff of heaven and the stuff of earth need to be brought together. Let me explain. You can eat the stuff while not believing the promise, and this meal will profit you nothing whatsoever. And judging from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, I might should warn you that this meal could kill you. And that's not hyperbole. To partake of this sacrament in an unworthy, unbelieving manner is like offering strange fire in God's tabernacle or putting out your hand to steady the ark. It might just be the last mistake you ever make. Let the Nadabs and the Abihus and the Uzzahs beware. But the other fail is much more spiritual and therefore it feels a little bit better to us. You might say, well, I won't eat them. I'll just believe the promise in my heart, and I'll leave the physical bread and the wine to others. But this, brothers and sisters, is not biblical Christianity. Matter of fact, it isn't any brand of Christianity. The promise was made flesh. 
You can have the benefits of the table without eating and drinking if you can have the forgiveness of sin without the bloody cross, which is to say you cannot have it. To rightly partake of this meal, you need to come eat and drink with your body while you believe in Christ with your soul for everything that he promises you. This is indeed a wonderful meal. Now, a meal implies need and hunger. You rarely come to a meal right after eating a meal. If that's normal for you, maybe we should chat after service of gluttony or something. No, we come to the table when we're hungry. Behold the rhythms of the Christian life. The first day of the week is Sunday, not Monday. Because we are free Christians, not slavish, secular shift workers where Monday begins all things because Monday is the miserable work day. No, this is the day that starts the week. This is our first act as believing Christians is to hear the word and to confess our faith and to celebrate communion. This means that by God's good design, we begin our week resting full upon Christ, being restored in him as we hear and believe and eat. His covenant promises. And having been built up by Him, we are then ready to take on another week, during which time we are to go about battering down the gates of hell with a smile on our face, the Lord Jesus in our mouth and on our heart, and as our goal. So just like Psalm 8, this is a table for comfort. And that comfort is for conquering. So come be comforted, so that you may conquer. Waging war victorious and joyful, you come. Welcome to King Jesus. Holy Spirit, as we, as we come to the table in this, um, in this mystery, God, that we can, by eating with faith, drinking with faith, that we participate in the body of Christ, that we as many members come together as one family, one body. And we find ourselves enjoying the covenant meal and the benefits and the blessings that Christ is to us. Holy Spirit, we do not have the ability in our flesh to do these things. And so I pray for those who come. Would you open our hearts and minds to believe the things, the promises that Christ has given us that All of our sin has become his, and he dealt with it once for all on the cross. The sins we have committed, the sins we committed this week, the sins that we will commit in the future, all of them died with him and remained in the grave when he rose from the dead. And all of his obediences, all of his manifest perfections, his myriad of joy-filled obedience to your will and to your word and to your desire that he fulfilled all of those things and all of those things become ours holy spirit we cannot we cannot benefit from those things as we ought unless you come cause those things to be ours by faith and so would you minister to us as we come to the table now we ask it in jesus name amen